So this morning we look to Romans chapter 6, and we will specifically look at the overlap from verses 11 uh, to verse 19. So Romans chapter 6, verse 11 to 19. And I wanted to read uh, verses 10, uh, 10 to 23, just to give us a context. Romans chapter 6, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we say because we are not under law, but under grace? Or shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting and sanctification and the outcome eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord may god bless the reading of his word as we look at this text we understand that there are two features that paul uses uh, to, to to keep us from presuming upon the grace of god there's two features And ideally, those two features, and actually those two features are mentioned very early on and frequently throughout the text, and also gives us the title for our sermon this morning. Those two features are obedience and mastery. Obedience and mastery. So those are two features as we understand what is God doing in the realm of righteousness related to sanctification, and how do we as believers live in that way, how do we live according to the grace of God? And then how do we refrain from presenting our members in unholiness to sin? And what is in play here is Paul is explaining the doctrine of sanctification and explaining how uh, the Christian ought to live holy. It is a matter of obedience and mastery. I would also say that these are the two things that keep us from the charge of sinless perfectionism. It keeps us from that charge for when we are explaining how is it that the Christian ought to live 
in holiness, and yet we recognize that sin is not completely eradicated within us, but we also recognize that the believer should be experiencing uh, a continual victory over sin. And we understand that when we look at obedience and mastery, obedience and mastery. So it keeps us from the charge of sinless perfectionism in this way, from from those whose sins have found them out under the weight of being called to holiness. And so there are those who charge us who are teaching holiness with sinless perfectionism because their sins have found them out and they're falling under that crushing weight of being called to holiness. But when we explain what we do to them and when we explain what we what we uh, how we ought to live according to how God has commanded us to, we are looking at it based on obedience and mastery, obedience and mastery. And I say that because that is where the text goes. We have established before, according to Paul and by the Holy Spirit, that it is the Christian's duty to consider yourselves to be dead to sin. That is the Christian duty. We discussed last time how that word consider means not simply to regard something, but to so regard it that you are compelled to act in accord with what you regard. Let me repeat that for you. When we talk about considering yourselves to be dead to sin, we discussed how the word consider means not simply to regard something, but to so regard it that you are compelled to act in accord with what you know or what you regard. You act in accordance with it. You consider that it's the case and therefore I act like it's true. And in this case, you act in accord with being alive to Christ Jesus. That is how the Christian acts. That is what motivates the Christian. And you'll hear me say it throughout this sermon. It is not only what motivates the Christian, but it is the source of Christian living. It is the power behind Christian living. That you are alive to Christ because Christ is indeed alive. That's what motivates you to live holy, but it is also the source of your holiness. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, in verse 10, Paul writes that. He writes that the believer lives to God. The believer lives to God. For the death that he died, he's he's talking about the Lord. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God. And I'll talk about the things that need to be drawn out from that verse. But it is the newness of life. It's the newness of life that Paul talked about earlier in the passage. It is that the believer is walking in the newness of life. He mentions that in verse 4. That that is how the believer ought to live. And in fact, I would say it is the top feature of Christian sanctification. By sanctification, I mean that work that is done positionally, meaning by your position, being alive to God in Christ Jesus, by by his cross work, you are positionally cleansed. However, there is progressively an ongoing sense In which in your life you have to wage war against sin. And progressively throughout the duration of your life you are moving upward toward not only perfecting holiness but glorification. Meaning I will one day see Christ as he is and I will be presented as holy before him. And and it is is, uh, by position but it is also by 
that which I do uh, because he does it in me. But it's the newness of life. And I begin there because you're talking about those who have the new birth. They're born again. They're born again. And so in verse in verse 12, in verse 12, he begins to further explain the war that must be won. It's a war that must be won in the life of the believer. Verse 12, after he says in verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just leave it there. He connects to it what the believer must do as a command. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. That is what the believer must do. How might I live holy? Well, I must follow the command that says I cannot let sin reign in your in my mortal body so that I obey its lust. And in Romans seven, he's actually setting the stage for Romans seven when he talks about how the believers united in Christ in the midst of spiritual warfare that's going on within him, how he's united to Christ. He'll go even further. And here, as I've said, he's setting the stage and he's setting the stage for something very particular. It's what the grace of God actually performs. Not hypothetically, what the grace of God actually performs in the life of the Christian. None of this is hypothetical at all. We're not studying theory, according to Romans. We're, we're studying what God actually accomplished through his son in his people. These things are actual. And my fear this morning, I, I fear that things have become so hypothetical and theoretical in the confessing church for so long that there is a hypothetical and theoretical holiness. That's my fear. Everything is hypothetical and theoretical. So everybody's kind of saying the same things. But when it comes to acting out those things, well, they're only hypothetical and theoretical. But I will tell you what I'm giving you this morning. I'm not peddling hypotheticals and I'm not peddling uh, uh, theoreticals. I'm not here doing this because I like oratory. I'm giving you certainty. I'm giving you Christian certainty because that's what Paul gave. Paul, the apostle, when he wrote this epistle, he was giving certainty. And that is a commodity in the present age in which we live that no one except the Christian can offer certainty. Certainty. Specifically, he gives the Christian a view of living holy in the most certain terms. So that you don't have to sit back and go, well, what do I need to do to live holy? What things must I undertake? How do I do this? What books should I be reading? What events and conferences should I be attending? What should I be doing here? What academic institution should I study under? None of that is in play here. Because who he appeals to is Christ and who he appeals to is God, the father doing what he did through Christ that has actual effectual working in the life of the Christian. But I want to bring you to what we first notice about verse 12, because I'll read it again. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. What we first notice is we notice the grammatical structure. 
And I say that because it is an, an imperative command. It is a command. So he's not saying what should be the case. He's not saying what we hope is the case, even though that hope may not be realized. He is giving a command. And that command is coming directly from the Holy Spirit, directly from Christ through the dictation of Paul to Tertius to the Romans and then certainly to us because we are comprised of the New Testament church reading a New Testament epistle. And I want to I want to pause here and be very direct about this. There is nothing that can give us an escape from the imperative commands of Scripture. There is nothing. If you are born again, you cannot escape the weight of the imperative command. But that I mean when somebody says this is what you have to do. It's coming from God. God says you have to do this. You can't escape it. You can't escape it or else the other side of it is you're in rebellion. So you can't escape the imperative commands of Scripture. And as a dear, dear brother of mine has said, and I'm paraphrasing him because we have discussed these things. And I remember him making the case openly. And he says, you do not get to call people heretics and outcast them and try to confuse what they are saying because you don't like the imperative commands of Scripture. Instead of saying that they're heretics and, oh, I'm confused about what you're saying because I don't want to follow the command. Just say I'm not a believer. I'm not a Christian. I don't want to follow what God says because I'm not born again. I just like attending church. I like being around social events. I like reading for the sake of reading. I like hearing people speak. But don't say you're a Christian. Because if you're a Christian, you can't get around the imperative commands of Scripture. And the first imperative command is, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. So you don't get to change the imperative commands to be merely suggestions. Because if you're doing that, you're not Christian. You're not a Christian. I pray that more people would come to those terms instead of changing Scripture. Outcasting people who hold to these things, calling them heretics, causing a tribunal to uh, that they have to stand before and ousting them from a place that may not be distinctly distinctively Christian if they can't deal with the imperative commands of Scripture. You have to deal with the imperative commands of Scripture. This is what God says. This is what I must do. And guess what? If you don't do it, then at least confess to God. Lord, forgive me where I am sinning against your commands. Repent. But what we see here is that first we see an imperative command. And what we see in verse 12 is not only Paul warning that the Christian ought not to let sin reign in their bodies. He certainly is saying that. But more so, where does that lead? Where does that lead? That is the question. I'll grant that there are some that believe that they can let sin reign in their mortal bodies. And yet all they have to do is perform before individuals and have some kind of loose confession. And thereby God will be pleased because visually and verbally they are identifying with Christianity. But the question that we have to ask when we look to these things, even for ourselves, is where does it lead? Does letting sin reign in our mortal bodies lead to holiness? Or is grace somehow best displayed through sinfulness? 
I believe that that question is answered right away. It's answered right away. Paul is clear that the only result of letting sin reign in the mortal body is indeed mortality. It's death. It's death followed by judgment. Mortality, temporal death, followed by eternal death and eternal punishment. That's where letting sin reign in your mortal body leads. And then it's followed by judgment. But before you get to that point, you obey the desires of the flesh. You obey the desires of the flesh. And listen, I think we can all agree because God has given us minds that can capture implications. Some try to push down and suppress implications, but we can trace it. We can trace, especially those who have the mind of Christ. The more obedience you render to that which enslaves, the certainty that it will become your master. The habits that you render, you begin to serve that thing that are those things that are most gratified by your habits. It is why even in the realm of parenting, we have as we have children and even children who are receiving parenting is that parenting. Much of it is I'm trying to give you habits. I'm trying to give you habits. And I myself, I'm trying to practice habits and I'm trying to do that all in this way so that I am not mastered and you will not be mastered by something. And if that something is negative, I don't want you to be mastered by it. If that something can destroy your life, I don't want you to be mastered by it. And that is where Paul is going. Paul doesn't leave room to somehow compromise where I can obey sin at times and I can obey righteousness at times. Because it is a question of what? Obedience and mastery. Obedience and mastery. That thing will certainly become your master. And that's where he's driving toward. It is why he gave the command in the first place. He doesn't want people, especially Christians, to have masters who will lead them to destruction away from God and and at enmity with God. He doesn't want that. He wants them to serve one master, God. He wants them to be slaves of righteousness because your habits lead you to that thing you're trying to uh, encounter. Obedience to righteousness leads to God. Obedience to sin leads to eternal punishment and death. It will become your master. And so his aim is to prevent sin's mastery and the Christian's slavery to it. Now here, he's not so much concerned with the unbeliever. Why? Because the unbeliever already serves eternal death. The unbeliever already has the master that is unholy. The unbeliever is already mastered by sin and the sin nature. The unbeliever is already disobedient and rebellious toward God. But he's telling he's telling the believers, I don't want this case for you and I don't want duality in your confession. I don't want you to confess righteousness on one side of your mouth and then on the other side of your mouth. You are confessing sinfulness and living according to that way. That's what he's saying. That is what is at stake. It's slavery. That's why we compel people to live holy, to live holy. And sin is a cruel taskmaster. 
It's a cruel taskmaster. Sure, it may deceptively present itself and say, I lead to holiness. I lead to empathy. I lead to some kind of, I guess, confession. But it doesn't lead there. Paul says where it leads. It leads to more sin. If you're a slave to sin, it leads to more sin. And eventually it leads to death. Because it's what you earn. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. It leads to eternal punishment. And so in verse 13, first and 12, we have the command. But there's not only the positive command, there's the negative command. There's a command to refrain from something. It's to refrain from something. And so he says... Do not do this after what he says in verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin. That's the positive. 12 and 13 are the negative. As a result of this, do not do these things. And what is that? What is the negative? Well, he says it. It's the command to refrain. There is the command to do something in its place. And we'll get there at the second part of verse 13. But first he says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves. Here's the positive. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Listen, he's not speaking to unbelievers because unbelievers can't do this. They're dead in their sins. They can't present themselves to God. They can't present their members to God. But believers can. So why do we have believers saying that they can't present their members to God? Well, because it's a question of the nature. They may not be able to. And if they're not willing or able, then it's because their nature hasn't been changed. I'm not able to. It's hard. I can't present my members to holiness. Our response should be, I understand. Are you saying you can't because you don't want to or you find it difficult because you're not willing to? Well, either or. Well, if that's the case, then I need to give you the gospel. I need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Because if you can't and you're not willing, then that means your nature hasn't been changed. Your nature hasn't been changed. You've only maybe identified with some moral features, some financial advantages of Christianity, but your nature's not changed. So you enjoy the residual effects of Christianity, but the fundamental feature of it, holiness, you can't do it. Because you can pretend with all that other stuff. But holiness, you can't pretend. You can't pretend. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying. But listen. There is the command to do something in place of, in place of not presenting your members uh, of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. He doesn't only say don't do that. He says This is then what you have to do in its place. And so he makes the point. He makes the point. There is the command to yield yourselves to God. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. 
It's not only for those who have walked with the Lord for oh so many years. It's for every Christian to consider. And remember what we said about consider. It's not only that I think about it, that I read books about it, that I hear it spoken of, but it's that I act as though it's true. But only God can give me the action. And so here it is. And then he says, do not yield yourselves to unrighteousness, but to God. Don't yield yourself to unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God. Yield the members of your body to God. Now listen to this. God is not capricious, meaning he doesn't do things and he's not a sadist. He doesn't do things and then laugh at people because he's commanded you to do something, but you really can't do it anyway. That's not God. If God is saying do something, you can do it. But listen to this, because he does it in you. He does it through you. And he does it for you. So the first thing you have to understand about an imperative command is this, that it both must be done and it can be done. That's why it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not, well, some of you can do this. Some of you, you can keep living unholy. The rest of you who do this, who go to this seminar, who read these books, who go to this conference, you guys can, you guys have the monopoly on righteousness. No, he's pointing to the common cross work, the efficacious work of Christ and saying, if indeed you have experienced this, then you are able because of what God has done in the power of the cross and in Christ. And guess what? Christ in you, the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Now you can do this. Now you can do this. And where you, quote unquote, fail, you are at war. And part of that war is confession. Part of that war is confession. But you win the war. You're considering not only things, but you're seeing victory. And Paul will talk about that as well. But it's an imperative command. Paul relates it in the verse not to personal achievement. He doesn't go to personal achievement. He doesn't go to whether you think you can do it. Or all the evangelical roadblocks measures you must put in place to ensure that you live as though alive to God. He doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to something more powerful. Again, I'm giving you certainty this morning. He goes to the power of the cross. He says it's because of the power of the cross, you can live holy. It's why Peter says it. Be holy for I am holy. It is why it was said in the times of Leviticus. It was an expectation because of what Yahweh had done in his power. That's why it's an expectation. But a religion of human achievement makes everything about effort, effort. And when effort is involved, it's the haves and the have nots and the hierarchies of men that you have to model yourself after because they are the haves. I'm the have nots. So those men have to act as mediators between you and God so that you can have. But I'm giving you certainty. I'm saying if you indeed are a Christian, then you have all the means that you need in Scripture pertaining to life and godliness. And that all begins in what Christ has accomplished on the cross to live holy. That's what you have. If you're not a Christian, you don't have that. So you can't live holy. 
I can give you books on holiness. I can give you all the Puritans on holiness. I can give you all the theologians on holiness. I can do a holiness seminar. I can't give you holiness. Christ gives holiness. And if he gives it, then it's evident. Then we can see it. We can see it. I think all that's going on in the modern evangelical church is to confuse us on the basis of what we can see. If you move around the measurement on the basis of what we can see, we begin to try to prove things in another way. I'm holy because I perform. I'm holy because I do this. I'm holy because I'm out in front. But it really is, it goes back to the power of the cross. That's certainty. That's certainty. And if people are denying certainty, you have to ask them, have you truly tasted the power of the cross? Is that evident in your life? Do you truly believe and act as though Christ has died on the cross for your sins? Is that is that true of you? Because if it's not true of you, then we're, why are we talking about holiness with you? We need to talk about repentance and saving faith. That's the issue. And so it is there. But he goes to the certainty of the atonement. He goes to the certainty of it. But listen, and I've said it before, the way he words things, even the certainty of how he words the second half of verse 13. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He speaks. That's certainty. That is certainty. That is imperative. And it's certain. But look at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. Well, that's a bold claim if it's not possible. That's a bold claim if it can't be achieved. Sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Perhaps there are so many today who are under law. They're performing their way to holiness, so they think. They're doing all the commandments that men are giving them so that they can live holy lives. So then they're under law and not even Mosaic law. They're under the laws of men, the laws of the land. You can be moral. You can be upright. You can smile nicely and be nice at times. But that's not saving faith and grace. That's not the evidence of divine power in your life. In fact, I would argue that on the theme of Christian sanctification, the evidence of a Christian life is a changed life. That's the evidence of a Christian life. And that changed life demonstrates a power that is not your own. That's why it's evident. So people are willing to make the confession, but they don't want the life to line up with the confession. Well, the same power that brings out the confession is the same power that brings out the life that testifies to the confession. So they're both related. They're both related. And he's talking about mastery. He's talking about mastery. I mean, I could even go down to verse 18 and we'll talk about it. Having been freed from sin, he's speaking with certainty. There's an absolutism to this. But listen. He's very clear to that point. And it is this. It is the power of the cross. I'm talking about actual power. I'm not talking about talking about the power of the cross. The actual power of the cross. In which we believe that God raised Christ from the dead. The power of the cross. Both Christ placing him there on behalf of the elect and God raising him uh, from the dead. And Christ presenting himself. That same power. That same divine power. 
It both motivates the life of holiness. It motivates it. So it answers the question, well, what motivates me to live holy? Is it so other people can see that I'm living holy? Is it so that I can gain some kind of position or stature in the church and reputation in my community? Is that my motivation? No. The power of the cross is your motivator, but it also empowers the life of holiness. Isn't that amazing? It motivates your life of holiness so that you don't have to go with the spirit of the age and go, oh, OK, now this is this is the thing to do. This is the right thing, according to the world or according to traditionalism that may find its way in the confessing church. No, my motivation is that which has already been established, the power of the cross. And guess what? That's where the power comes from. That's where the power comes from. And so it is God alone then, because it, it starts with him and you're motivated by him, it's God alone who receives the glory for it. It's God alone who receives the glory for it. So when we're talking about holiness, I, I recognize in the time in which we live, we live in a time of insipid mentorship where people believe when you ask them about how have they come to this place of not only salvation but holiness, they begin to rattle off all the names of other men. Who's receiving glory for that? That's, all, that's, that's performance based. No. When you ask me about holiness, I want to tell you what God has accomplished in Christ. My testimony is filled or should be filled with scripture. This is what God did to work in me. And even when I speak of those specific events in my life that God has used, I'm speaking about God. This is what God has done. This is who God is. So many so-called Christian testimonies start with men. And guess what? They'll end with men because men are mere men. They're mortals. And I'm not saying everyone who does that is diabolical and insincere, but I'm trying to recapture at least for them as well. It has to be about God. If you look back at the features of holiness, praise God. Praise God. And so it motivates the life of holiness and empowers it. And so God receives the glory for it. That's the true feature of holiness. And that's what Paul is saying. You're presenting your members as instruments of righteousness, not to the church, not to the institution, not to your friends, not to the media, to God, to God. And the effect of that will be it will affect your relationship with his church in fellowship. It will affect the fact that, oh, now I'm living holy with others with whom God has placed me in fellowship. Oh, now I'm able to do things related to holiness and how I communicate with my neighbors, with unbelievers, with people at my job, with all the rest, people at my school. I'm able to live holy, so this is what my life looks like as it affects them. But that's not the motivator. Motivator is not to be seen. And so these distinctions are clear. But listen, if we're going to talk about the newness of life, the new man living righteously, the new man has new instruments. He has new. In he had old instruments. The tune to which he played was the sinful nature. His old instruments played the tune of sin and death. He has new instruments. I recognize I'm saying musical instruments, but this actually means your members, the faculties, your body, your hands. Your legs, 
your arms, your mind, everything that God has given you in bodily form. He has changed not only your nature, but he's changed how you use your members, your instruments, how you use them. He has new members. But listen, God gave him the new instruments. And so because he has them, he presents them to holiness because it was God who gave them to him for that purpose. He gave them to him for that purpose. And so that's what Paul says. But in verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Under the law, sin rules over those who are indeed under it. And listen, the law is holy. Let no one mistake what we're saying as though the Mosaic law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments and all the rest have some kind of unholiness in them. They are holy. They are perfect and they are good. And I say they because of the catalog of them, but we only believe in the law. We don't believe in the tripartite features of the law. We believe in the law, the law of God. It is good. It is holy. His commandments stemming from the law, good, perfect, and holy. However, the law has a purpose. The inadequacy of the law is man's desire to fulfill it as a means of his own righteousness. It's not because there's something defective in the law. The law is a schoolmaster. It's a teacher. It's a teacher. It's a teacher that leads to grace. It's a teacher that serves as a witness on the, on the witness stand in God's divine court and says, I have to present to you the evidences of grace. That is the law's number one feature. And we recognize that in other Pauline writings. But if 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 you're trying to live under the law as a sole means of righteousness, apart from faith and grace, then sin becomes the ruler to you under the law. Sin then becomes not only excited in you, but you are now ruled by it under the law. So what we are seeing today, I really believe that what we are seeing today related to the feature of sanctification, all that we have said so far, maybe it is this, that those who believe living holy under grace this hour, that it's so difficult for them, is because they have become something rabbinical. Maybe they're rabbis. Maybe they live in a rabbinical culture. Maybe they live under pharisaical rule. Because the Pharisees had no problem saying things that sounded like the book of Moses. Saying things that sounded like the law and the prophets, the issue they had was doing it and saying things consistently. And it was because their nature hadn't changed. Maybe it is because they have become something rabbinical. They have tried to turn the schoolmaster into a teacher of righteousness. Maybe that's the issue. Not as the schoolmaster to lead to righteousness. They want all the residual effects that should be the effects of a holy life to be that thing that they have gained by their own performance. It looks like this. I lift my hands because I'm righteous. I go to this event because I'm righteous. I read these books because I'm righteous. Maybe it ought to be that I lift my hands because of God's divine grace. 
I worship him out of my mouth. I, I desire to read things that are differently and I desire to line them up to scripture because of his divine working in me. That I want to test these things. I want to learn more about theological things. I want to learn them so that I can worship him. But those things aren't what make you righteous. Those things ought to be an effect of your righteousness. Not the cause of it. Because if you have the cause of it, well then now you have become something rabbinical. And I believe that's what we have. And listen to me very carefully. A rabbinical culture is certainly a lucrative culture. It is an attractive culture and it is a popular culture. We know that from the time of Christ. But it is not a culture that God blesses. And Paul says it here. We are under grace. We are under grace. That is the contrast. So to escape from it, you have to change what grace means. But the contrast is we are under grace. That's the contrast. That is the source of our holiness, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. As I've said, it compels us to live holiness. It commands you to live holy and then it enables us to live holy. It's the grace of God. You and I didn't earn it. It's something he gave. It's the grace of God. But then in verse 15, you and I see a familiar question with a familiar emphatic response. Again, we see here Paul is answering the charge levied at his teaching. And he says it. He says it in this way. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He's revisiting the original argument he's making. Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Because that's what you all are saying by the you all, his opponents. You're saying that I'm departing from the law, therefore creating lawlessness under a definition called grace. And then he says, may it never be. May it never be. I say that. They charged him and the charge against him was that and it was among those who believed that the law made them righteous because they obeyed it to perfection. That's what they believed about themselves. That's what his opponents believed. And it's the same thing in uh, I would say in the modern evangelical context as well. People are doing things that they believe are making them righteous. So when you go to the work of the cross. They're frustrated with what you're saying because they've identified all these things as making them righteous. And when their lives don't testify to righteousness, they have to protect those things that they thought were making them righteous and argue against the actual features of righteousness. But having said that. They actually believe that they were being made perfect by the law. And they believe the grace that Paul taught was a license to sin. And again, he's repeating what he said from Romans 6, 1. But I also want to turn your attention to Romans chapter 3, verse 8, because he mentions them. He mentions their argument. He says, and why not say in the context of Romans 3 and why not say as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. So his slanderers were claiming that that's what he taught. Let us do evil that good may come. And Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. Not only may it never be the case before God, 
nor may God never permit it, but may it never be the case in my teaching. Because quite frankly, Paul didn't teach that. May it never be. These were those who they didn't err because Paul was difficult to understand. They erred because they twisted his teaching, as Peter said about them, to their own destruction. They twisted his teaching. They made him difficult to understand because of the implications of what he was saying and the chief implication that what he was saying came from Christ. May it never be. Paul's a, Paul calls upon in verse 16 what the believer intimately knows at the outset of salvation. It's what the believer knows at the outset of salvation. Listen to this. Verse 16. Do you not know? Do you not know? That when you present your Selves to someone as slaves for obedience. So this isn't secret knowledge. This isn't a higher life. This is something you know at the outset. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? You have to see how that is important because what Paul is not saying is, oh, I become a Christian. I sin, 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 and then in my years of Christian maturation, I somehow sin a little bit less. I sin, 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 and then I'll, I'll sin a little bit less as I grow. That's not what he's saying. Why? You have to love the grammar. Because quite frankly, when he says, when he says, do you not know, that is in the perfect voice. Oh, I'm sorry, the perfect tense. The perfect tense. And that is to say it is a completed action with ongoing, continuous results. When he says, do you not know, he's appealing to that which has been established and that which becomes evident as an ongoing practice. Do you not know? He doesn't say here, well, some of you know this and some of you don't, because I recognize there's a category of, quote unquote, baby Christians. He's saying, if you're a Christian, then you know this. You know this and you act in accords with it. And if you need to know it, you go into the place where it's taught and you find out. But it is inherently known because you recognize his work in yourself. That is the part of the Christian faith that so many are trying to do away with. Not only are they trying to do with do away with the changed life, but your personal recognition of your own changed life. That when you're saved, you know that your life is, you know it first. That your life is, God has done a work in me. I am different. However you word that. You don't have to make a theological treatise on it, but you go, something has happened to me. Back here, I didn't love him. Now I love him. Back here, I didn't honor him. Now I honor him. I didn't speak the way I speak today. I didn't love the way I love today. I didn't even seek for fellowship the way I, I do now. Things have changed in me, and then others begin to recognize that change. But when you begin to twist these things, you make it so people can't even recognize those things within themselves because you have the old man and the new man living together. But Paul says, there's no room for that. Do you not know? He appeals to what they know. Listen. What the believer intimately knows at the outset of salvation and has continuing implications for how he acts in his life 
as a means to be a slave to righteousness and to present his members to the obedience of righteousness. That is essentially what Paul is saying. You not only know, but you're intimately acquainted with it at the outset of your salvation. Otherwise, what's the point of a changed life and being born again altogether? If you can't recognize it and no one else can recognize it, then what's the point of it? You recognize it. You know, because it happens in the inner man. It happens in the inner man and then the outer, the outer man, it follows. It happens in the inner man and then the outer man, it follows. He says, do you not know? It is clear that if you by your own hand, by your own action to your own detriment, commit or yield yourselves to sin, you become its slave and it becomes your master. This does not change your nature. Uh, in this sense, it does not change your nature to unrighteousness. It rather reveals that you are unrighteous. So if you're presenting your members to sin, it doesn't change. You. I'm not born again and somehow I sin and uh oh, now I'm being unrighteous. No, no, no. You were never righteous. You were never righteous. It just reveals to you that you are unrighteous. Sin does not result in holiness. It results in death. It is why we warn and plead with people. We know it leads to death. It leads to judgment. But it is contrasted in verse 16, not with the hypothetical struggle of holiness. That's not what the contrasted uh, nature of this is in verse 16. Look at it. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death. Now look at what it's contrasted with or of obedience resulting in righteousness. That's the contrast. It's either you present your members to sin and unrighteousness or you present them to God and it results in righteousness. So it is the certainty of obedience and righteousness. And who is responsible for this? Well, it is certainly us in one sense. But we are not the source we are responsible, but we are not the ultimate source. We are the participants. God is the ultimate source. I'm describing to you what is known theologically as progressive sanctification, that ongoing work of God's cleansing to make us righteous. We certainly play a part. Several scriptures teach it, including what Paul writes later in Titus chapter 2, 11 to 15. We play a part in it, but he is the source of it. But Paul, in verse 17, he thanks the source. He thanks the source. Look at this. He gives us who the source is. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He doesn't begin to thank his fellow apostles. He doesn't begin to thank some institution. He doesn't even thank the Roman church. He thanks God. You did this. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Essentially, he says you were once slaves to sin, but no more. What happened to you is that you became obedient from the heart because your heart was changed. You became obedient to, from the heart because your heart was changed. It's not that you made a decision with the same heart 
to be changed. It's that God changed your heart and it affected your mind and it affected your members. It affected essentially the whole person. That is the only true definition of true holiness and sanctification. You can tell if that work is being done in many ways, one of which is I ask this question, who's receiving the glory for it? Who's receiving the glory for your Christian life? But your heart was changed and so you obeyed. It seems so simple, doesn't it? Your heart was changed and so you obeyed. He changed your heart. And not only did you obey, you wanted to obey. But do you know what did it? We could say God. He certainly did it, but he did it through a means. Don't miss it there because it says what you obeyed. What you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. It's the teaching. It's the teaching. That is why the teaching of Christ, because this is what Paul is referring to. He's referring to the teaching of Christ, the doctrines of Christ, that apostolic teaching. Because here, in this historical context, we are in the apostolic age to this point in Romans. But that apostolic teaching that was handed down to the apostles from Christ, God used that to bring about presenting yourselves as holy. That is the sanctifying means for holiness in the Christian. It's the teaching. So when you stop teaching scripture, holiness not only becomes an afterthought, it becomes very difficult to promote. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. John 17, what? Your word is truth. I want to tell you that is the chief means by which God sanctifies the believer. He cleanses them. It is through the truth. So when you begin to introduce other means... As identifications and IDs and benefits and badges of holiness. When you introduce those things and the people begin to identify with those things. I'm holy because I speak this way. I'm holy because I can introduce to you the top 40 catalog of all the theologians to read, of all the conferences to attend. When that becomes the badge of holiness, what then happens is no one is being sanctified. Everybody is just sounding alike. But what I'm after is sanctification in the truth. I want the truth to do a work in me and I want it to do a work in you. It is why we determinately in season and out of season go through scripture. Because that is where the divine power of God lies to not only save but sanctify and to glorify. But Jesus said this and it is both urgent as it is today. As it was then, but Jesus said it in the context of a prayer for his disciples. So I ask you, what do you think Jesus wants and how do you think he wants us to achieve it? He wants holiness, but he wants us to achieve it by the word of truth. That's how. And it's not only proclaiming, it's not only getting dressed in the morning, putting on a suit and tie and standing up there after they're done with the orchestra performance. And then you get up there and you talk about holiness. And yet you've been beating people down all week. It's that you have to live it. You have to live as though it's true. You consider it yourself. Don't go operating on people if you aren't well. You have to consider it yourself. 
You have to not only live it because the people are to follow the voice of the master as you hold his voice before them. And they have to see it in you. I'm not talking about judging an outward book. I'm not talking about age and experience. I'm talking about that life to which all Christians are commanded to live. And it is evident because we do it in step and we each have uh, differing gifts to spur each other on in this way. That is the church. So listen, we cannot eliminate the teaching. We cannot eliminate the teaching or seek to over supplement it with the thoughts of men. Because what you shortchange is holiness. You shortchange holiness. Your mind probably goes to, well, why is this happening like this? Why is this going on like this? Why are people doing this and saying this? Why are people saying they're Christian, but really the world actually acts a little better than they do at times? Why is that happening? I would say a lot of it is they eliminated the teaching. They eliminated the teaching. They put a lot of things in its place. And when you eliminate the teaching and you have the thoughts of men... Then you begin to take a strike at and eliminate the true means of sanctification. Paul says it there. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And then in verse 18, he says, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God did it, and God did it through his teaching. And he did it by changing your heart.